And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Fair to say that Katie Porter has done for whiteboards what Michael Jordan did for gym shoes. The California Congresswoman's whiteboard-aided withering committee interrogations of financial executives, captains of industry, and government officials have made her a viral sensation, a progressive favorite, and now a leading contender for the U.S. Senate. I spoke with her recently before a crowd at the Chicago Humanities Festival. Here's that conversation. What a what an enthusiastic group for a Saturday morning. My goodness. Congresswoman Katie Porter, welcome. Thank you. Great to be with you. So you you've written this terrific book, I swear politics is messier than my minivan, and I feel like the appropriate first question is just how messy is your media? Your your minivan? So when I when the book came out, um, a news station wanted to come and do an interview in my home, and my they they said, please tell her, don't clean your minivan. <laughs> and I was like, oh, look, you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> like, so it was it was embarrassing. They opened up all the you know, the sliding doors, and they were filming what's on the floor and the. The juice box and the cereal and the library book that has still not been returned. No, those were authentically there, right? Yeah. So it was, um, it's pretty messy. Yeah. So the fact and, that politics and, is and messier, it, it tells you something about the baseline yes. we're working with. And, and as between Congress and the minivan, which is easier to drive? Oh, definitely the minivan. <laughs> the minivan. So you've done more for the whiteboard. I mean, you're like to the whiteboard what Michael Jordan is to gym shoes. Um, and so I thought to make you feel at home, I'd start with a whiteboard. And I'm, not, I'm only going to use it once because my handwriting is bad. This was done by one of my trusty team. But this is what it says. It says Lorimer, Iowa. Lorimer, Iowa, because... Uh, this is the most fame Lorimer, Iowa has ever had. <laughs> <laughs> All 149 people are super proud in this moment. Um, but it is kind of a through line in your life that's reflected in the book and, and in your history. Talk about growing up in this little farm town in Iowa. You grew up, I guess, in the house that your great-grandfather built, the farmhouse. Um, so, so talk a little about that, because your family sounds a little like a cross between the Waltons and the Hunger Games. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, I grew up in Iowa, as he said. Um, I'm a sixth generation Iowan. And um, I tell this funny story in the book um, about my very first day in Congress in January 2019, January 3rd, 2019. And I'm, I'm in the elevator and there's just a scrum of people we're going to go be sworn in. And there's a members-only elevator, and that's that feels intimidating. And I'm herded into that. And there are a couple of, of older gentlemen in there I don't recognize, so I assume they're Republicans. And they they say to me, oh, "Where are you from, Miss?" And I said, "Iowa." <laughs> and then I realized I represent California. <laughs> like I just I just kiss my political death certificate on the very like, you know the very first day. Um, but in, you know, growing up, when you ask someone where you're from, what you mean is where your people from, right? Um, and so I grew up in Iowa on a farm. I was a nine-year 4-H'er. Um, and one of the things that is very true about growing up in Iowa is that you have a strong sense, even as a child who can't vote, of being politically important. And when I got to Orange County, um, after moving around several times, it was it was immediately apparent that regardless of party, people in Orange County, particularly Democrats, though, and independents, basically understood in their minds, they thought that their vote didn't matter, that they were not important to democracy. And every Iowan, whether they, whether they are or not, 
thinks that they are. Yes, I got to spend some time there. I I love Iowa. Yeah. So part of what I tried to do, I think part of how I've approached campaigning, part of how I've approached doing the job of Congress is with kind of a, a much more grassroots retail politics commitment, even though I'm doing it in a state where there is virtually none of that tradition. Um, I'm trying to single-handedly bring back both big hair to politics and grassroots politicking, which I think outside of kind of Iowa and the presidential and New Hampshire's has kind of disappeared a little bit from political life, replaced somewhat by digital communication, replaced by TV and cable. And I, I think it's really important. And I think my roots are kind of where I got that that sense of it. One uh, fun fact is that you once uh, were an intern for Chuck Grassley. Uh, what, what did you learn from that experience? Um, this was 1994, and at that time, Senators Grassley and Harkin were the two senators from Iowa. And keep in mind, you know, Democrat, Republican, they voted the, the same, something like 75% of the time, which is something that it's very hard even half a generation later to imagine having happen. And at the time, they did something, I think, very, very innovative, which is that they paid their interns. This is the mid-90s, but they took turns so Harkett would pay one semester, the Grassley folks would work for free, then they'd flip it the next semester. So I applied to both. I got both jobs. Harkin it was not his turn to pay. It was Grassley's turn to pay. Um, and I needed the money to be able to have the experience like do most of the young people that we try to hire. Um, and I learned a couple things from Senator Grassley. Um, one, I would say, is his commitment to responding to every constituent. So we write back to everybody who writes to us. And that is true about Senator Grassley. It is also true about my office. I, I thought naively that that was like a rule. But like you had to write back to everybody who wrote to you, but it turns out you don't. And many elected officials do not. Um, and so that was something that was really important to him. Um, and of course, the, he you know, people have heard about the full Grassley, where he visits all 99 of Iowa's counties. And so I think that kind of commitment to being present in community. The other thing I took from Senator Grassley, um, and I wish he would go back to doing more of it and less judiciary work, um, is that in this period in particular, Senator Grassley was a huge champion for oversight. So you might remember the, the Pentagon toilet seat, right, that, that was exposed yeah, as costing too much money. Toilet seats, yeah. And so there really is a commitment there to kind of thinking about taxpayers, making sure that government money is being spent well. Now, I would say Senator Grassley and I do not agree on what is worth spending on, but I think there is a shared commitment and a value I took from him in making sure that tax dollars are spent wisely. And I think that's something that Democrats need to champion. It's, it's extremely important as a progressive to show that government works effectively. And you can't do that if you if you write the check and never look back to do the oversight work. I, I want to return to uh, your growing up. I'm tempted to ask if showing hogs at the uh, 4-H events was good preparation for <laughs> hogs at the trough. But... But what I really want to ask is about the period of time in which you were growing up, because it was a very kind of convulsive time in the economic life of, of your community, and it touched your family and all the other families. And uh, tell me about that and how it helped frame your worldview. So, you know, in the, in the late 70s, early, very beginning of 19, the early 80s, when I was a young, young child, the agricultural economy was booming and farming um, planting more, sort of fence row to fence row, right? Um, you know, investing in modern agriculture, buying bigger and better equipment, taking out more loans was all part of our Cold War strategy. So to be a good American, not just to be a good farmer, meant investing and growing and expanding rapidly. And when all that came screeching to a halt um, in the mid-1980s, in 1985 and 1986— my family was caught in the middle of it, as were all of our neighbors. And, the, and whether you were a farmer or not, and we were the small towns that really made up Iowa. So the, the bank in my small town closed. And I remember being on the school bus and we had a little town square and the bank was the, you know, the fanciest building I had ever been in. Um, 
had like a crystal chandelier and gold carpet and the bank, you know, the bus came to a stop. There was like a line of pickup trucks and we, we were a traffic jam in Afton, Iowa at three o'clock in the afternoon. And the kids were all yelling, let's go, let's go. And some wise ass who might have been me, um, you know, the, the school bus driver was like, well, the bank is closed. And I remember, you know, we, we shouted back, of course it's closed. It's three o'clock, right? Back then, banks closed at three o'clock to process their transactions on the East Coast. And the bus driver said back, no, the bank is closed. And none of us as kids really knew what that meant, but it was very clear from the tone in her voice that it was a serious problem. And the bank did reopen, um, but the the, the town never was the same. And so one of the things I saw sort of very visibly was that the government kind of rescued the bank, but not necessarily the farmers. So, you know, all of these important guys in suits came in black cars. They really do drive black cars, the FDIC. Um, you know, they came on a Friday afternoon and they got that bank reopened. And believe me, that helped our town. It prevented it from being worse but this was, you know, then in 1988, when we're having the election, I think everybody in Iowa was very, very ready to be done with Ronald Reagan. He's a Californian. He doesn't understand us. He doesn't understand agriculture. And this is the election in which famously Michael Dukakis suggested that Iowa farmers needed to innovate and grow Belgian endive. Yeah. And that when asked about agricultural policy, the other candidate, George Bush, said that he was running for president, not secretary of agriculture. And went on after he won to appoint a private equity hedge fund manager as his secretary of agriculture. And so I think I had this juxtaposition of feeling like politicians wanted things from islands. They wanted us to anoint them, right, as a presidential frontrunner, as a as the president, but then when we needed them, they were nowhere to be found. And just personally, uh, your dad had to, he was a farmer, but he had to take a job at a bank uh, during that period to keep the farm going so to support what, your family. Yeah. So what happened is my grandfather, who was over 60 at the time, kind of kept doing what he could do without my dad. Um, and my dad went to work at a bank. My mom went to work teaching um, high schoolers. And, you know, she started commuting um, and eventually had a job at Better Homes and Gardens. And she had, you know, a 60 mile commute each way to and from work. Um, and my dad went to work at this bank. And I don't think he's ever been the same person. It's not that he's not a happy person, but he's never been the same person um, after that. And we were lucky because my parents had college educations. They had gone to Iowa State. They had the ability to go and get work in, in town. Um, but, but the work was pretty grim when he took that job because he... He was literally telling his former colleagues, farmers, that they couldn't keep their farms. So, he, you know, he would come home and I just I remember him getting out of the the car every day and just sort of sagging, right? Um, and a year or two before, you know, a year before, right, he would pull up in the pickup truck and he would jump out and, you know, he would take off his his seed cap and there'd be a little baby bunny that he had caught when he was mowing hay or whatever. And so it was just never the same. And so we, we did what a lot of people did. We were very fortunate. We did not have to declare bankruptcy. We didn't get foreclosed on, but we, we rented more out. We sold pieces off. We didn't repair things. And then when my grandfather died a few years later, that was it. You went from this little town to prep school at Phillips Andover, where the aforementioned Bush, both Bushes attended, uh, and five Nobel Prize winners. And it was a long way from, uh, uh, you must have been like Dorothy looking around and saying, this isn't, this ain't Iowa. Yeah. So tell me about that, because- that must have been an incredible sort of cultural, and you you talk about it, but the the sort of cultural transition. So I um I wound up at Andover because of our town newspaper, the Des Moines Register, who over the years, and I, I don't quite know how this came about. I assume someone who then was in the family that owned it is now owned by a conglomerate, but at the time, um, gave a scholarship for um, a paper boy from the time they were all boys back in the in the 50s and 60s to go to Andover. 
And I had been part of a program at Iowa State to basically um, attract guinea pigs for their psychology research on gifted kids. So in the morning, we got to take this class, and in the afternoon, they did psychology experiments on it. So for example, um, they, and I don't remember consenting to any of this, but I'm sure I did. But for example, they did like a whole battery of occupational tests on us. And my top career choice that came back, vending machine repairman. So whenever people ask, like, what are you going to do if you don't win this election or that election? I'm always like, vending machine repairman. <laughs> um, but so I was part of this gifted program at Iowa State, and it was transformative, right, for me. Um, and it was free. It was funded by grant research, right, to get the, the guinea pigs. And so they followed up with us as a longitudinal study, and they sent us information about opportunities for gifted kids. So I got those pre-stamped postcards. They don't even have a stamp on them. They're like pre-stamped. And I, I wrote, you know, please send me information. Roll Route 1, Box 127, Lormer, Iowa, to every everything in the book that said financial aid available. Because that was one thing I knew. If there wasn't financial aid, it wasn't going to be for me. And so it turns out if you write a postcard like that to Andover, I thought I was applying to like a summer camp. Like, I just wanted to go have another summer, but they sent me information for the school. And my mom had known one of these paper boys in her town, Decorah, Iowa, who had gotten this scholarship and had gone off to boarding school. And so it was the only place I applied to. Um, the admission officer told me not to worry. You know, I, he was sure I would miss, you know, the farm, but they had animals like squirrels. And by the way, when I got to campus... Like campus squirrels were terrifying because they come way too close to you. Like in Iowa, if an animal comes too close to you like that, you shoot it because it has rabies, right? And so these campus squirrels get really get up in your in your business. So wow. that was really but I remember lying there the very first night and my and thinking the night before classes started, you know, please let me pass. I I, I, I that's I just wanted to be able to stay. Um, and I was able to, and I ended up liking it a lot. It was very, I think my parents to this day, my dad still lives in Iowa. I think to this day, my dad would tell you that he didn't see why I had to go. He didn't think, he thought I could have just waited, hung out in high school and been, you know, taken more, taken more um, industrial arts and whatever there was to take. Um, my mom thought it was really important that I find a community of people and to have peers. And so to this day, you know, I don't know that they, they feel the same way about it. Um, but the rumor around my town, my dad was on the school board at the time. So that's really popular when you send your kid away. But he got tried today. Yeah, he got reelected easily. Um, and the rumor around town was that, you know, the only schools people really knew about that were boarding schools were like those Missouri military academies. So the rumor around town was that I was pregnant and then I was being shipped off to a Massachusetts sort of military academy for pregnant girls. And that was the rumor. By the way, you mentioned squirrels. I grew up in New York. We used to show squirrels at our 4-H. You did. We just put them on little leaves. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number Limited Edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. Your journey, I mean, it was unusual in that you went to this elite prep school, and that must have had its challenges uh, as well as the opportunities. I want to ask you about that, but I also want to ask you about leaving Iowa, and I want to ask you about the experience of small rural communities, of small towns, uh, and it's partly a political question, partly it's in your wheelhouse. What happened to these communities that so alienated them from the Democratic Party? You talked about Republicans letting them down in the 80s, but your hometown, I think, voted for Donald Trump with 75% of the vote. Now, it's how many people live there now? 149. Yes. But nonetheless, that was pretty typical of communities like that. What, what What's driven rural and small town communities away from the Democratic Party? Yeah. I don't know that there's just one answer, as you can imagine, but I, I do think that when people are in need and they need help from their government, and government doesn't deliver for them, it it breeds a kind of contempt of government that I think the last few decades has been very much in line with what the Republican Party has been espousing, which is that, you know, government can't do anything right. They're just wasting your money. They're not going to be there for them. You can't trust them. Um, and so I think, you know, when you think about you know, Trump's kind of make America great again slogan. And you look at the counties and the towns like the one where I grew up, where there is now tremendous addiction problem, no economic opportunity. The only way to survive is to move to Des Moines or Cedar Rapids or Iowa City. Um, you know, those making it, making it great again to that group of people has resonance, right? Um, even as well, for what some of us hear is is racist dog whistles and then um, other things, and so I do think that this is an, a lesson in what happens when you when you're not there for people politically. And I'll just give you another context in which I saw this. So when I arrived in California for the second time, I taught at Berkeley for a year, and then I came back to work at the University of California, Irvine. Then Attorney General Kamala Harris asked me to be the monitor for this big nationwide mortgage settlement to make sure the big banks quit cheating people as they took their homes. I mean, they cheated a lot of people getting into those homes, and then they were cheating them on the back end for closing on them. And one of the reasons I said yes to that job and worked so hard at it is I know what happens when you hear an elected official, and in this case, President Obama, I think, you know, he went to Phoenix and he said, there's going to be two or three million homes saved in the first year. And in the first year, there were something like 40,000 homes saved. And when you have that gap between the press conference and kind of what's really happening in people's lives, it erodes confidence in government and erodes trust. And not just in one party, I would say, but in the larger institutions of democracy. But I think the Republican Party has capitalized on that um, in an electoral way that we as Democrats don't because we actually believe that government can and is a force well, for the pro-government party and government is seen as failing uh, people uh, as in those communities, they may feel that way. Uh, that's a big problem. That's a big problem. Um, I'm going to, you, you jumped ahead and so I'm going to jump with you in, in your life's uh, story. I, I'm going to skip over the fact that in between you went to Yale, which is also not in Iowa, and you, and 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 then you took some time off and you taught in Hong Kong. I'm going to skip over the fact that you were some sort of costume designer for the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Were you designing for people or for the floats? So for everybody. So everybody from Santa Claus 
to the people who hold the balloons, the entire thing. So, I mean, it's sad to say, but it's true that Congress is not even close to the coolest job I've ever had. Yeah, yeah. I kind of peaked early. Yeah, I mean, wow. Um, and then you went to Harvard Law. And I want to talk about a, sort of a fateful interaction that you had with someone all these folks know, Elizabeth Warren, who was a professor at the time. But late in your, you were obviously interested in these issues. Sort of lately, your, uh, your college thesis was the effects of corporate farming on rural communities. Um, but you got interested in her work on bankruptcy, took a course from her, answered the first question that you were asked by her, and basically flubbed it and went and threw yourself on the mercy of the court and thus began began a, a really f- the, the, the formational relationship in your sort of professional and maybe your personal life as well. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, the interaction, um, I'll never forget it. And Elizabeth actually tells this story in her book, Persist, um, in the chapter, the section of the book that's about her being a teacher. And um, and so I don't fully recount it in my book. I sort of refer to it. But you know, my strategy, Elizabeth Warren was, um, it's safe to say, long before there were white words, there was being warned um, in law school. And so she was very stern. And so my strategy was to sit in the front row and look very prepared. And this, by the way, I, this is exactly what Mark Zuckerberg tried to do when he came to Congress. He, when I walked in, he was like, and I, I was like, that's not going to work, right? So, so I sat in the front row and I thought, well, you know, maybe if I volunteer, she won't call on me, right? So I had done the reading. I was really prepared. And she asked a question and I raised my hand and Miss Porter. And I gave, like, I really knew my material. I gave, I thought, a great answer. And Elizabeth said to me, come on, Miss Porter, think, think. <laughs> and I remember tears welling up in my eyes. And I remember I was thinking. And I, I went to see her after class. And, you know, as she tells the story, you know, I, I basically went and said, don't give up on me, Right. Um, and she, you know, she says most people who come to see her, they come and say, you know, you, you, you know, today's lingo, the kids would say that they're don't use my past traumas against me or whatever, but you know, don't call on me again. I get nervous. I get anxious. This isn't how I learn. This is not my learning style. But I basically went to Elizabeth and I was like, I can do this. Don't give up on me. Like, I'm really interested. I really want to do this. Like, keep calling on me. Um, and that was apparently not what's typical. Um, I came to learn later as a oppressor myself, that's not typical. Um, and so we began really a long-term um, partnership, relationship, working together. Um, she's been a mentor and a friend. She helped me, guide me kind of into law teaching. And when I was ready to make the jump um, into politics, I remember telling her right after Trump was elected, I had brunch with Elizabeth. And I was saying to her, I was supposed to be on the Hillary Clinton transition team. Yeah. So I was very excited. All dressed up and nowhere to go. Oh, I bought winter clothes. <laughs> like, like tights, right? Things that you just don't need in California. And I, you know, I took all that back to Nordstrom. And I, I remember, like, I just rolled it right in in the suitcase. I packed it in, you know, and I, I put it on. I said, I want to return. Because you thought this was going to be entree into being a government official. You didn't think that you weren't oh. thinking about running for public office. Oh, I'm never running. What I really, I was excited about being on the transition team. I did want to be in government. What I really, really wanted to be was a bureaucrat. And I mean that in the best possible way. Because I, I spent my career working on consumer protection issues. So when we write those rules in a way that actually lets people enforce them, when somebody actually picks up the phone at the agency and investigates when you get cheated, it really, really matters. And I just kept being told, you're too experienced, you're not experienced enough, you don't have enough political experience, we picked the dude, whatever it was. And so I was really excited when I had this opportunity with, um, with Secretary Clinton and to do the transition team, and it didn't happen. And so I, I told the Nordstrom lady, you know, I want to return all this. Mm-hmm. And she said, this was like the day or two after Trump was elected. She said, didn't, didn't anything work out? <laughs> and I said, no. 
because that was really the feeling I think we all had in 2016. And so I went to see Elizabeth and I told her, you know, well, I'm not going to be doing this Clinton thing. I've been teaching quite a little, quite a long time. And here are my ideas. And I had three ideas. And I, I cannot remember for the life of me what the first one was, but clearly not memorable. And the second idea I had was to try to become a law school dean because I really believe in legal education. I think we, we do not have too many lawyers. We have too many lawyers in the wrong places. Okay. And law school education can do a lot about that. And I told her I want to become a dean. And Elizabeth said, oh, it's terrible. What a truly, truly never speak of that again. Terrible idea for you. So I screwed up my courage and I said, well, or I was thinking I could run for Congress in Orange County. There's a Republican in the seat. And I, you know, I, I, I'm not sure if I could win, but I, I think I could try. And she said, no, that, that is a good idea. Um, and she told me two things I've never forgotten. One is that she said she would be with me every step of the way. And she has been. I mean, she's still with me every step of the way in my political journey. But the second thing that she said, I think is even more important, was that she said, as a candidate, you will learn something every single day. You will learn something about yourself, about what you're mm -hmm. good at and not good at, because the public will let you know. Um, you will learn something about part of your community that you never saw before, right? You think you know the town that you're in, but it's different when you're representing it. You'll learn about an area of policy that you, you never thought you were passionate about. And that has really been, I think, the greatest joy of this job mm -hmm. is that there's sort of, for those who want to do the work, who are curious, who want to pick up and learn about policy, the problems and the challenges and the breadth of kind of what Congress works on is, is unbelievable. And, and that's my favorite part of the job. This having said all that, this book is not exactly a love letter about politics or about Congress for that matter. I mean, it's brutally honest. It's sometimes a little cutting and sardonic. Absolute proof that you wrote this book yourself. Uh, so we know it wasn't ghostwritten, but you had some brutal experiences as a candidate. Um, social media about your about your your weight. Uh, you wrote something, you said, if you gave a choice between, this is what you took away from it, if if you're given a choice between two excellent candidates who share your values, vote for the fat one, or the ugly one, or the short one, or the bald one, these folks will stay humble because social media will keep them that way. First of all, I want to thank you for a, a, a friend of mine for the including the bald thing. Uh, and then more seriously... I mean, that's serious, and we can have a whole discussion about what social media does to kids. Yours, you've got three. But your family was involved. Your opponent, as happens sometimes in politics, made a public issue of a very personal period in your life where you got divorced, had to get a protection order, and your kids are exposed to all of this. Were you, were you prepared for that? Um, no. I mean, I, I really thought that this I didn't do anything wrong, and I, I called the police and got help. And that's exactly what you're supposed to do, not just as a matter of the rules, but as a mom. Like, there, there's no more fundamental thing that you need to do is to keep your family safe. Um, you know, I think it, it kind of was, it was not my opponent per se. It was sort of a supporter of my opponent, and it was, I think, whispering around in the ecosystem. Um, and so I ended up having to sort of you know, as they would say in your line of work, control the narrative. And I had to sit down um, and sort of tell the entire story of the end of my marriage, of my husband being, my then husband being arrested. Um, he was put on a suicide watch. He was, he was sick. And the end of the marriage, he was not stable and he needed help and I needed safety. And my kids needed safety. And so I had to tell this whole story. It was painful. It was raw. I just wanted to leave it in the past. Um, but the most painful part of all of it was how angry my children were at me. Um, and they are still furious about this. Um, and they, you know, they feel... Because this was their personal story and they didn't want to say their... Their fine. story and it is none of everyone else's business. They had a concern about you writing this book. Oh, yeah. I had to show them. Um, I showed them this chapter. Um, and one of the really the angle I took on it in the chapter because I was like I'm not doing this again. I'm not I'm not play by playing this raw painful personal thing again, 
right? Like the the whole goal of of the divorce and of all of this was to to move on, to be safe, to to be happy. And we anchoring back in this to to sell books, I just was not willing to do it. And so what I wrote about in the book was that having to tell this story, knowing that if I didn't tell the story and to allow people in the political sphere to weaponize it against me um, and having to make that choice. Do I tell the story or do I allow it to be weaponized and, and win or do I allow it to be weaponized against me and lose? And I chose to tell the story. And to be honest, it's the only decision in six years of campaigning that I am someone ashamed of. Um, and interestingly, you know, in three tough Republican campaigns with super PACs spending millions of dollars, this never comes up. In the Senate race, it is coming up again. So I am again having to address all of this. And so my children are older. They are no less hostile about this. Um, That's part of getting older. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it is it is very hard on them. I think it's, um, you know, it's one of the reasons that people don't run good, talented people don't run is they fear situations like this. Um, and so I think it's important on the one hand to to show that this is something that happens to people, um, whether it's their own mental health struggles, whether it's a situation with you know domestic partner violence, whether it is having a relative who's been incarcerated. These are real life experiences that we have as Americans, and they are directly relevant to having a representative Congress. And so on the one hand, I feel very righteous about telling the story about using it to advocate for the Violence Against Women Act funding. And on the other hand, as a mom, yes, I, I never wanted my children to, to get questions about this, to be asked about this. Um, and they were largely, I think in the chapter, the chapter is really to them. It is an apology and explanation to them about why I talked about it. And then I see and feel still the pain and harm that it caused them and what was what was the the reason the positive the need to do it? And you think the trade off is worth it? I don't know. I mean, I think that's why I say I'm I'm not I'm unsettled about it, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there it is, and this is something you know, politicians. The correct answer to this is it was absolutely worth, right? I mean, I, I think this is where I may be a little bit every more time, Every time you reference the BS nature of politics, you look at me. I don't know why that is. I'm just naturally facing you. I'm going to look over at these lovely people. <laughs> but you know what? You're, you're, the answer you just gave us why this book is worth reading, because it's a very honest book. And the first chapter was actually about the day that one year or so into your time in Congress, you thought, I'm done. I'm out. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the first year was incredibly hard and and I, I think this may even be the opening of the book, um, is, you know, I say, I thought the hard part would be getting there, right? So I was so focused on winning this campaign and the rough and tumble nature of, of campaigning that I, I thought once I was in Congress, right, you, you see those, you know, relaxed looking people with their blow dried hair and they're striding confidently into Congress. And I, I was like, oh, that could be me. And it turned out it, it can't be me. Uh, because, you know, I'm, I was a single mom, still am. Um, at the time my kids were about seven, uh, let's see about, about when I started, they were roughly six, seven, eight, and about 10, 11. And I'm flying back and forth. We're in the middle of a government shutdown that we have an impeachment. Like the schedule is like, nobody knows. Are we leaving tomorrow? We don't know. And I remember saying to the majority leader, who's a wonderful man, Steny Hoyer, a wonderful man, and I remember saying to Steny, like, I, I need to know when we're voting so that I can tell my child care provider when I'm coming home. Like, I, I am an employer too, right? And and he said, you know, we, we can't run, your situation's just so- You're the only single mother in Congress. Yes, yes. Um, and so of young children, there are people who've, who have been single mothers and then have run um, later in life. And, and Barbara Lee, for example, is one of them, my, my friend and um, Senate competitor, and has a very powerful story about her life as a single mom. But she entered um, Congress after that experience. And so, you know, the, the comment was that we can't run Congress on your schedule, just obviously true. There are 435 of us. That didn't bother me. That was a good reminder that I'm 
I'm just one of 435. But the second part really stuck in my craw, which was, you know, your situation is just so unique. And there are 10 million, give or take half a million, single parents or single grandparents in this country. The only place in which that perspective would be unique is in Congress. And you make that point. I'm sorry to interrupt. You make that point in many different ways that Congress really isn't a representative body. Some of it has to do with the fact that you've got the majority of your colleagues are millionaires. They don't have experiences like the one uh, you uh, described. Does that, how does that impact on policymaking? So I think the way that it, it plays out is this phenomenon that I describe as, did you know? And this is when on the House floor is it's very loud. It's very chaotic. This this again I didn't think about. Um, it's it's basically like a Chuck E. Cheese kind of environment, right? Like noisy people pushing. There's little buttons, red and green. You're hitting them. Yes, no. Yes, no. <laughs> and and I, I I hate that kind of environment, right? I was a professor. Like I could not think of something get more pizza. different. Yeah, no, you don't even get pizza. The cloakroom has like tuna fish sandwich, like a very 1940s menu. And so, um, but it's this did you know phenomenon. So on the house floor, someone will come up to you. And I, I want to say at the outset, I'm saluting these people in this story who are saying, did you know? Because it's much better than the alternative, which is that they don't know. But they'll come up to you and they'll say, did you know that childcare costs more than college? <laughs> Yes, <laughs> because my daughter, Betsy's preschool at UC Irvine, cost more than it would have been for her to be an undergraduate on an annual basis. And that's true in about half of all states, by the way. Did you know that um, the price of, of milk is, uh, eggs is going up? Yes. Because I, I buy the eggs, right? And so I think some of it is if you don't, and I'll give you another example, if you don't ride the bus then how do you really understand the challenges and threats and violence and challenges that our transit workers are facing, right? And so there's a lot of cures for this. No one person, no one body can ever be perfectly representative. And, you know, given the state of our country, I'm, I'm not sure I would want it to be, but you have to really lean into what experiences you don't have. So if you are not from a family of immigrants, then you better make sure that one of your top priorities is going to the border and meeting with immigrants and talking with talking with your caseworker about how cases are going, where people are trying to get visas. This sort of, did you know, I mean, a lot of the answer to what my colleagues were learning about, um, you know, I was experiencing. So the kind of moment for this that really drove home is people, you know, when people started talking about, did you know that the pandemic is really hard on parents? And I mean, the day I started praying for schools to reopen was the day Gavin closed them, right? Like, I mean, that was not something that I heard about, like literally in my own life, we're yelling at each other to get off and on the Zoom so we have enough bandwidth that we can get a connection. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. You almost quit. You felt you were not measuring up as a member of Congress, and you were not measuring up as a mom, and you were really stressed, and you decided to hang in there, and then... This thing happened, which is uh, the Financial Services Committee. You started asking these probing questions, and that's when the where is it? That's when this thing came into play. I think this whiteboard of yours is the only weapon that uh, members, Republican members of Congress, would be willing to ban. Oh, so uh, 
But talk to me about this, because in a sense, what you have been doing is asking these powerful corporate leaders, government officials, and so on who come before your committees, the did you know questions. And oftentimes they don't. I mean, Jamie Dimon was an example who did not know what his tellers or something, his, his core sort of grassroots workers made as compared to the cost of living. Talk to me about how this all became a thing, because it's made you a big star. Um, well, I think part of it was that Congress is a place particularly, and this is a policy choice. It's not, you know, it's, it's a decision. Democrats in the House have a very seniority-driven system. Republicans do not. They have a kind of rotating band of characters. Um, Democrats have this, you know, 20 to 30 years to become a committee chair kind of system. And so there's a lot of, you know, I would have ideas and things I wanted to work on. And people would say, well, you know, you can't, you, that's my bell. Um, I've had it since 1994. <laughs> and you want to say, and it hasn't passed. So maybe we should, you know. Um, and so part of it was that one of the things that is most egalitarian in Congress, besides your vote, that each vote is equal, is that every member of the committee gets five minutes to question. And so I decided that I was, you know, I just was like, this is one of the only times I get to even speak in this body. And so I'm going to use it. Um, and so, you know, the whiteboard for Jamie Diamond was really about generation, you know, teaching classroom after classroom of students where you would ask the question and then you would be like, Ms., you know, Mr. Zach, you know, Zachary, and he would say, uh, can you repeat the question? <laughs> Witnesses are coached by highly, highly paid $1,500 an hour lobbyists to say stuff like, can you repeat the question? To stonewall and count down the five minutes. I have never heard anybody talk as slowly as Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> the CEO. You know, if he was, I am delighted to testify. I mean, it just, and so you really have to think about how- hey, We got to clock here ourselves. Exactly. So like, how are you, that's what it was like sitting there though. Like, how are you going to get an answer, right? And so the goal of the whiteboard was, I wanted to sort of lay that budget out, both so Jamie Dimon could follow along and I didn't get the, can you repeat the question, but also so that when people were watching this, they could see it, right? So hearings, just like speeches, just like town halls, are opportunities to get answers Yes, but also to show the American people that we are doing what they sent us there to do. And so the whiteboard is, is just a tool to do that. I've used other props and other things sometimes. Um, and it's so it's there's nothing magical about it. People call it the whiteboard of justice. It just comes from Target. Okay. Like you have to bring the justice yourself. Um, and one of the, you know, one of the, my favorite chapters in the book is how to, a little section of the book that's on how to whiteboard anyone about anything. And I sort of walked through having to whiteboard my son who was trying to negotiate a raise for his chores. Needless to say, <laughs> he still makes seven fifty a week. You know, as I mentioned earlier, you, you talk about sort of the class distinctions in Congress and so on. And, you know, you talk about Nancy Pelosi, who was speaker when you were there, as kind of a... Uh, a Ferragamo shot spectral figure. Uh, and um, talk to me about her and your relationship with her, how you viewed her as a leader, and talk about the new leadership. Um, you know, Nancy Speaker Pelosi is an incredibly talented woman. I mean, an incredible political talent, you know, not just once in a generation, I mean, once in a century kind of political talent. And one of her talents is that she is able to get this kind of large, chaotic, yeah. diverse caucus to get their act together and agree. And that isn't always easy. Um, I'm sure I, as part of the problem, I would like to apologize in advance, um, you know, apologize to her. I mean, you know, but she's, she is powerful. And, you know, people will say to me, you're fearless. And I'm like, I've hidden in the bathroom from Nancy Pelosi. Like, I literally took that vote and went running straight to the women's restroom. And, you know, when I got there, by the way, there were a couple other people there. 
And I said, what are you doing? And they said, hiding from Nancy. <laughs> so um, I've now, you know, she's, not, she's no longer speaker, so I'm not revealing our trade secret. And Hakeem can't come in the women's restroom. So, um, but I, you know, I, I think it was, it's, it's an interesting moment for the House, for the Democratic Party. Um, we're in the minority. And so this is a real opportunity for our new leadership, Hakeem Jeffries, Catherine Clark, Pete Aguilar, um, I think, to kind of figure out how they're going to lead. Um, I think that, you know, they're, they really work as a team. They're more collaborative. Um, they, they have different life experiences. And so I think it's an exciting time for the House. I think it is, we're going to come out of this in 2024, I think, really ready to hit the ground running as a, as a House caucus. Although if you have your way, you won't be part of it. Correct. Because look, I mean, if you want to talk about an institution that needs some truth telling and some reform, I can think of no better place than the United States Senate. There's nothing wrong with a well-turned political applause line, women say. Um, But there is a Democrat in that seat right now, Senator Feinstein. You've been uh, you've, you've you've been asked and you've discussed, but talk about that and the awkwardness of this situation. She's eighty nine years old, uh, and she's been ill. She hasn't been in that in the Senate for some months. Uh, issues related to the Judiciary Committee and her absence from it, and the ability to move judges forward and so on. Do you think she should resign? Because if she does, that's not particularly good for you politically, is it? Um, so let's let's do a little lot there. So let's, I know. let's back up. So when I know we, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm cognizant of time here. So let me give you the the 90 second version here. First, every person who cares about gun violence prevention, who cares about oversight of things like our our commitments um, to international human rights law and torture at Guantanamo, who is a woman in politics, owes something to Senator Feinstein, who is a trailblazer. And one of the things it means. To be a trailblazer, and I think we sometimes lose this, it's not just that you get to your destination. It is that you blaze a trail, making space so that it is easier for the people who come after you. And I am one of those people, and for that I am grateful. Senator Feinstein has been ill for about six weeks, I think. Um, I'm not sure the exact time frame she got shingles. Which is terrible, um, and she and she had a bad case of shingles, and she's still recovering. For me, the bigger point here is an institutional one, and I, I don't want to lose this moment to make the institutional point, which is the Senate rules of procedure don't work. You are going to have people who are going to be out. We just had John Fetterman out for eight weeks getting health care that he needed. And that is a terrific thing to see. We're going to have colleagues who are going to have children. We are going to have people. I mean, well, it's the second oldest Senate. It's the second history. oldest Senate. So I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, we're going to have some more shingles cases, yes. right? Like it is going to happen. And so we need to have rules that accommodate this and that think about this. Every other workplace has had to think about how do we retain people who need to take family and medical leave? My colleague, Colin Allred, um, had a had a baby. His his family, his wife had a baby, and Colin decided to take paternity leave um, in the House of Representatives. So, do you know what he, the procedures he had to go through to do that? He said, "I'm taking paternity leave," because there was no there's no policies, there's no way to you know. He had to literally craft that for himself, and it was incredibly brave and courageous. By the way, particularly for him as a father, really admire that he did that. But so the Senate, you know, they have a lot of rules that don't work. We all knew about the filibuster. Now we're learning they have this rule that doesn't allow the Democrats to replace people on committees with other Democrats. So I hope Senator Feinstein is able to return soon. This is not the end that she wants. This is not the end, I think, to anyone's political career. So you don't think she should resign? I don't don't know because I don't know what her health situation is. So I don't know if she's one day away from being able to come if, back. But I would have said the same thing about John Fetterman. Like, I wasn't, I don't know what his yeah. health situation was. If, and he's back and he's terrific. Yeah. And and so I, I just don't know what the situation is. I do think that when we elect people to office, we have to think about right. what are the, what is the term of the office? What are the demands? It's a don't, six don't term. Don't the clock on me here. If she, um, if she does resign, the governor would replace her. The governor has said he would appoint an African-American woman to the seat. If if he did do that, 
Would you still run for the Senate in 2024? Yes. So Governor Newsom um, has said that he will appoint a black woman to the seat. Um, I assume that that is a commitment that he will keep. Um, I think it depends a little bit. He made this promise in March of 2021, so about more than two years ago. So I think it depends a little bit on how close that vacancy might be to the election, because I think California, we've had a lot of appointments because we've had a lot of people who've gotten other jobs. So we have, you know, Alex Padilla, our other senator was appointed, our attorney general, Rob Bata was appointed, our secretary of state. These were all appointed in the last couple of years. So I think the the timing matters a little bit. I don't know who Gavin would appoint, um, but there is no doubt that the basic principle that Gavin is, is evincing, which is that we need to have a representative Senate. And that means we need to have black men and women and particularly black women, but we need more Latino women. We need more women, period. Um, and so my, I think this is very important that this is decided by the voters of California. And so I am in it for the long term to earn this position. And I think my competitors are too. And I think it's going to be an amazing and fun and important race. And if we do it right, we will drive turnout up and down California in a way that helps us win the four to six seats in California that we need to deliver the House majority. We, we're, right, we're, we're, we're out of time, but I just have to ask you this as we go out. I thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you. You seem like a perfectly nice person. Um, why is it that why is it that people say, God, she's got a lot of hard mark on her, you know, staff and all of that stuff? I'm sure that irritates you, but why is it? Look, pe- people are going to, we, we know just from looking at where these comments go and who gets lauded with this, that there is an element, we saw this in teaching evaluations, right? That women and people of color are more likely to get tagged with this kind of, not tough, but mean, right? That said, look, everybody has to take the feedback. It actually doesn't upset me. I think it's important to hear it, um, to talk with your staff about it, to make sure that you're trying to create the most productive, positive working environment that you can have. What it means to be a leader is isn't to dodge and hide from difficult news. It's to hear it and learn from it. And that's what I've tried to do with this experience. But, you know, make no mistake about it. I don't think anybody who watches my hearings and watches what I had to say to a pharmaceutical CEO would would not would mistake that I am working really hard to deliver for the American people, and I want my whole team to be doing that. And I am really, really proud of them. And the book is dedicated to the staff and volunteers because I think when you read most of these political biographies, there is no mention of the staff. Every great idea just came right to the elected official, right? And that's not how it works. So. It used to take me off when I was on the stand. Yeah. So every, you know, one of the whole, one of my favorite chapters in the book is one in which I got relief. I had a flub. I made a mistake. I went back to my staff. They were like, it wasn't my fault. They were all kind of trying to figure out what to do to make it better. And I, I tell that story from the staff's different perspectives because I am really trying to show people that, that it is a struggle. We are a team. We have the same challenges that, that you all have. I mean, one of my work colleagues is Marjorie Taylor Green. I mean, the struggle is real. And I, and I think, you know, you have to stay in that struggle. And that means be willing to oh, where, where you need to do better and where you need to improve. And it is okay to demand that the American government work better. But you have to do that in a way that keeps everybody in, on the team and moving forward in a positive way. And, and that's really my commitment. Well, let's give a hand to all. I was going to say... I first was going to say, let's give a hand to Congresswoman Porter's staff. So uh, <laughs> the book is, I swear, politics is messier than my minivan. A great book, well worth reading. And I so enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Finder Annenberg. The show is also produced by Jeff Fox and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.